Welcome to Shadows, Strings, and Other Things Exhibition Conversations, where we, that's Anna Nielsen, Assistant Curator of All Things Digital, and me, Nicola Lavelle, Curator of All Things Material, take you behind the scenes to meet with the creative individuals who help make the exhibition. Today we are speaking with Skooker Broom, 3D designer for the Shadow Strings and Other Things, the Enchanting Theatre of Puppets. Skooker came to the museum through multiple avenues, anthropology, material culture, architecture, theatre, and rock and roll. While studying at the University in Hamburg, Germany, Skooker was first introduced to anthropology at the Museum for Kunst and Gerber. Afterwards, he spent four years touring across North and South America with a multimedia electronic band, curating vignette installations on stage and experimenting with lighting for these art installations. While touring across America, he also found time to study anthropology, museum studies, and material culture at the University of British Columbia with Dr. Michael Ames, who was the first director of the Museum of Anthropology, where Skooker has now been an employee for over 30 years. Skooker, for the non-museum people listening, do you mind giving us a brief explanation of what an exhibition designer does? Goodness. Um... I think it's a bit of orchestration, if anything. There's a lot of parts. There's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of players. There's a lot of collaboration. And one has to, as a designer for the show, be able to bring all those together into a unifying whole. And that vision of what that is, is often stuck in a mind's eye and needs to find a way to come out to communicate to everybody else on your team what you're trying to do. It's that orchestration that I spend a lot of time in that internal space that sometimes comes out in dream space as well um, and tries to find a way to apply it to the real world. Um, uh, many of the techniques that I have or have learned have come through occupying different positions within the process. So a real valuable trait of a designer, especially in a museum, is to understand the academy, the curatorial side, the production side, conservation side, 2D side, multimedia side, and bring those skill sets together in one with a larger team. Cool. Excellent. So you have been designing award-winning exhibitions for the UBC Museum of Anthropology, MOA, since the early 1990s, and you have a reputation for being able to magically transform the Odeon Gallery for every temporary exhibition. So each time the space, aesthetics and ambience of the gallery look and feel so completely different. So Skooka, could you tell us about the design process for making exhibitions? So where do you start? I start with the curator. I mean, it does start mm -hmm. with the original concept that they have that they bring forward and trying to understand the meaning of what they are trying to accomplish and achieve. Uh, at times it involves field research, so depending on where we are in the curatorial process, there may be opportunities to actually go in the field and experience the world that they are talking about, uh, the people that they have met, uh, to see the objects in situ as opposed to in an artifice, which institutions tend to be. Uh, and so I think it, it starts at that curatorial level. Um, with that comes research, and that research is, as I said, field work, but also doing my own, um, because at times when you are not necessarily engaged with a multiplicity of types of curators that we have here at the museum, um, representing communities from all over the world, um, 
you have to wrap your head around what is being represented. And so in this instance with puppets, we all experienced puppets, so I had to go back into childhood and remember all of the um, manic the maquettes and the um, string puppets that my mother used to make and the puppet shows that we used to have and even for our daughter the puppet stage that we made for her when she was eight years old so you kind of go back into all of these places memories research with the internet it becomes a little bit different now because it's 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 a it's a wikipedia research which isn't proper so hopefully back to books or maybe there's other um, commentaries with videos and such but basically gathering as much information as possible at that preliminary curatorial side of things um, a show can take anywhere from two years to three years to manifest. In this instance, this show was actually fast-tracked really quickly. So mm -hmm. getting into Nikki's mind was a challenge because Nikki's mind is incredible. But I also knew Nikki from the past as well. So we had a relationship there. And you build on those relationships and those trust patterns with, the, with your curatorial um, team, if you like. Um, from from that point of, of beginnings, uh, we start to open up into a mood board environment. And that was something I l actually learned from an intern from Emily Carr. Uh, Marcella, um, forget her last name, but anyways, Marcella from, uh, she was with us for a year and she brought the concept of a 2D mood board to us as an idea, which we borrowed and started to expand into a 3D world to see it as a very valuable tool for communications, both with the team, but more particularly with the curator, to try and get a sense of mood and sensibilities that manifest itself into an environment, into a space, uh, to objects, to references, to even terminologies, um, mind mapping, if you like, to kind of wrap around all of these ideas so people were speaking about things that they could see or had ideas about, not just about uh, what's in somebody's mind's eye or within their head. So the mood board became a very instructive piece of how to communicate curatorially, but also with the rest of the design team. Um, from there, uh, it expands into other sorts of modeling and maquettes, which... Yeah, so you use a combination of maquettes um, or models of the exhibition space, as well as computer design programs. Uh, why do you continue to use two methods, both analog and digital, in the process? I, I guess actually where it really does start is actually going down into the space itself, if we can. And I think it's really critical to take uh, the, the, the curator um, or the team, depending on whether they're familiar with the space itself, and start to actually understand the space and what it feels like, what the potential is. That is true of a new space or of an old space that you're trying to recreate. Um, and that gives you a sense of volume and uh, ambience, some mood. Uh, a very important aspect is audible. So how does the space sound? Maybe even how it uh, smells, because some spaces can have a different ambience based on all of these sensory uh, uh, feelings. Uh, so to, to experience that first, um, going to a maquette, and I, I tend to use maquettes more than models, although models is a very common word. Um, because models are often really finite and much of my my type of design work is working in a nominal space almost where things are about impressions and sensibilities and you lock some things down but they're not necessarily picture perfect or they're not actually um, the mood board might speak to it as an emotive quality but it won't actually speak to it as a physical object I can measure 
a size, but I can't necessarily give you the exact color under that exact lighting. So the maquettes are a nicer way to massage and try to look at the, um, the idea as a, um, with fuzzy edges, if you like. The computer design that we use is either in CAD work to give us really exact dimensions or in SketchUp to give us more nominal 3D extrusions. But they become an issue of perspective. Um, you can texturize, you can do ray tracing, you can do all these fancy uh, uh, techniques to try and communicate an idea and a style. It takes a lot of work to extrude and get to that level of, of um, expertise and presentation. But they're very good for doing quick ideas and moving around in that environment to demonstrate what you like to do nominally. But from a perspective pers view, they are um, they're, they're, they're limited. Um, everybody sees the world differently when it's on a flat screen. It's a very different way of looking. And all you have to do is change the field of view on the computer and you realize that what feels bigger feels a lot bigger and it's got nothing to do with what reality is going to feel. So there's a lot of interpretation as a designer that you have to do to communicate what the 3D virtual model is to the team. The best way to do that is just to put it to the side and build a real model or a maquette. And the maquette, again, is still fairly simple. Some theatrical maquettes can get very complicated and be like operas. It can get very complicated and very, what you see is almost what you get. But again, that model maquette building is a very uh, um, committed process to do. So we tend to work more in that nominal uh, space, sometimes adding color, but basically working in whites and grays and just kind of sculpting a physical space in the maquette. If we need to expand it into a larger scale, then we will go from a small scale to a larger scale in order for views to, to happen. You get to cut out windows and peek through and look at things and you get to see a perspective that is much more uh, realistic in its, in its uh, view for the human being uh, and being able to communicate that for everybody because everybody can see it through their own eye as opposed to the field of view that a computer provides for you. Um, I learned a really lar a large amount of that and an advantage of doing that through theatrical design. Again, not taking it to that point of operatic production, but taking it to the point where you actually can turn off the lights and shine a flashlight onto a maquette and start to see what things may look like. Um, I remember doing one lighting design uh, test in the theatrical design where uh, I brought in a um, backdrop screen of chopsticks in order to create this environment of a, an Asian setting and a, a little um, wasabi bowl full of dry ice to create smoke and then hit it with a light so that the smoke started to flow over kind of like Phantom of the Opera across this Japanese set with a little lotus blossom in, in the background. Um, and this scale model was two feet by two feet, so just tiny, but it proved all the ideas of what kind of stage I wanted to set. So you get these opportunities to have everybody see what a maquette can do and what, what you're trying to accomplish, which you can't do necessarily in the computer design. However, um, both of them paralleling each other is a nice compliment because you can jump back and forth between virtual and reality and reality and virtual. And they each inform the other until you get to the point of production where you hand over the virtual model, the CAD model, and say, let's try and make this because then you have drawings and they're actually to scale. Brilliant. So let's pick up on that lighting element. Um, because in terms of exhibition design, you have been, or you have a reputation as a lighting mm. wizard. 
Um, your services have been sought by other institutions to assist in lighting and exhibition design. So can you tell us more about your approach to lighting? Well, lighting uh, becomes the emotive quality of the project itself. Uh, it's a very uh, important aspect that you have an idea about what it is in advance. Uh, it's often not realized until you're actually on the floor because the cases aren't there, the architecture's not there, the furniture's not there, the color's not there. Um, so there's a lot of, of uh, visualization that has to happen in advance to doing lighting. As I said, some of it can be done on the maquette. Some of it is bringing experience to the table and talking through some of the ideas in the mood board and trying to see what makes sense to people and see if that can be recreated. But lighting as an emotive quality um, really comes down to, again, the sensibilities that you're trying to create for the project itself, originally curatorially, and what that might be. So for shadow strings and other things, there was a very strong sense that we were going to create stages and we were going to create a focus. Uh, and those stages were designed in such a way where the focus was into the, the stage itself and everything orientated yourself towards the stage, including the virtual stages, which were the video vignettes. Uh, and trying to create a lighting environment for that became a theatrical opportunity, which we used in this case, some projection mapping and some artificial lighting to be able to upstage or front light the, um, the, the puppets in an active way with a, a little bit of um, fun lighting technique. So the idea was to try and create some puppet staging um, and using traditional uh, theatrical lighting methodologies to do that but the whole mood of the environment had to be to exist as well so the experience in itself was the environment and that lighting had to then get toned down in order to meet conservation requirements uh, and also to create a mood that was what we deemed to be festive or a carnival so you would be walking through spaces that felt like you should be hearing laughter and kids running by you and smell cotton candy and just that sort of lightness needed to be there so in order to achieve that, it was a carnival, not in the daytime, it was a carnival at night. So it was that low light, festive lighting, uh, dangling um, spatial lighting that was is not a common thing to do necessarily in an exhibit. It was more a little bit of artifice because you get into the di diorama style, which isn't usually what I try to do. But in this instance, that ability to create a mood did lend itself to a dioramic kind of installation. Um, not literally, but just the mood of the festive lighting. So I know one of the challenges with light was displaying the shadow puppets. Mm -hmm. um, they're made of leather, so it was not possible to stage them with a direct light source to cast the shadows. And so you innovated with laser cutting technology. Can you tell us more about that process for the shadow stage? Well, yes. I mean, the, the, what we also talked about was trying to create animation within the puppets themselves as well. And shadow puppets... Uh, one, first, they need to be shadows. They can't be just an object themselves. I mean, of course they can, but not if they're on a stage. They need to be shadows on a stage. And animation of those pieces would be the best thing to accomplish because those pieces move. And that was true of all the stages. And we tried to achieve some of that through projection mapping, as I mentioned earlier. But with the shadow puppets themselves, being able to present them as shadows meant um, using a very strong light source in order to create the uh, definition and the um, uh, contrast that was required on the, screen, on the screen. Something which um, would not meet any of the conservation requirements for those objects per se. So the 
idea was to recreate them as real objects by photographing them in high contrast, um, re, uh, reproducing them two sides with, as laser cutouts. And then with those laser cutouts, we could basically use them as props, if you like, and uh, place as much light as we like on them to create the same character on the stage. The animation part, we weren't able to realize. We had a lot of ideas and that didn't come through, but we were able to at least create that, that shadow component. There was another um, leather object as well, which is the Hass Hassamat and Herzog, the Turkish puppets. Mm -hmm. Karagos uh, and Hejabat. Karagos and Hejabat, thank you. Um, which needed to be on view um, and needed to have some backlight because they, as shadow puppets, had some um, beautiful opalescence in their coloring, as did a number of the, the Asian puppets as well. Uh, and in that instance, we created a um, LED backdrop um, that was only a quarter of an inch thick that the objects could be placed against and then have a luminosity come through and we were able to dial that in with um, a proximity detector that would detect you coming to that to that location and turn the light on at a certain level which allowed conservation to be content with that kind of light on flooding that object. Excellent. So, and really sort of picking up on the sort of ethical lens, in making and designing exhibitions, one of the challenges um, for the present is to establish a, a sustainable and ethical practice. So how did this relate to the Shadow Strings and Other Things exhibition? Well, the two questions, ethical and sustainable, and I'm just trying to think about ethical. And ethical, I mean, that's a very challenging world at times. I was trying to find out what, how I could uh, interpret it within this project. And I think the best thing I could come up with with ethical for this project in, in per se was that at one point we committed to the concept of hands and that everything that we could in this, in this project needed to be touched by a hand. And we used hands as a metaphor because puppets were manipulated by hands. And so we came up with some crazy ideas about hands and how to have that follow through. And that came down to um, hiring artists to do uh, illustrations that were hand done that we blew up into backdrops and hiring artists to do painted faux finishes that we used as a stage so that everything that the puppets which were being manipulated by hands were also being, their environment was being reproduced by things that were made by the hands. So there's an ethical commitment to artists and artisans and just the concept that these objects were, are, are being handled and being used and we needed to create an environment that was of that nature as well. Then on the sustainability side, that's more a common factor with, with what we're able to achieve here at the museum by having a design area and department and having people work together is we, we save objects from past projects that we repurpose and turn into something else, whether that's fabrics or furnishings or special lighting conventions. Um, and by doing that, we find efficiencies that allow us to add on new parts. So by being sustainable, we, we, we borrow and use from the old, but we also procure for the new, therefore they become the old, and then that becomes the sustainable practice moving forward. We're always using and recreating, using and recreating. And I find that having constraints is actually a good thing. Um, sometimes designers want no constraints. They want to be free to do whatever. 
um, they want to do. And obviously in a full budget and a full environment and less politics, maybe you can do that. And maybe then you'd call yourself an artist. But I don't see that being what I call myself because I work within constraints. And those constraints are material constraints, they're budgetary constraints, they're constraints of, of practice with the team, or maybe there's cultural constraints and representation. And those constraints can be actually very valuable because they allow you to limit yourself, but also um, look at new ways of creating visions within those limitations. So I find the sustainability practice of reusing components and parts, being creative, and that constraint is actually very useful in my process. Really cool. Um, I guess to end, I know this is a very difficult question to answer, but did you have a favorite stage or of the five stages or a favorite area in the exhibition or even a favorite puppet? Well, the first question is easy. So of all the five stages, what's, what was my favorite? Um, it was the sixth, which was the space itself. Okay. It was the whole. So um, surprisingly, uh, it was complete. And because every stage was unique and different, uh, which was one of the commitments that we made to, there was a continuity, there was a thread of continuity for each one, but there was a lot of uniqueness through materiality and surfaces and things that created um, nice little vignettes that you could like. But the environment itself as a whole felt complete. It felt like it held together as a, its own stage. It's the sixth stage. It's a silent stage. And so I was very pleased with how that came out. And that was because of the team. The team as a whole contributed to that vision, that, that capability. Everybody brought some very strong and unique and um, visionary ideas to it that we just manipulated and made into a project. So it's a sixth stage that I think I'm, can be said is my favorite. Um, but of the puppets and of the objects, uh, that's really difficult because I, I can see I have, I have many uh, personal fondness and memories of different puppets through my life. Uh, and it was interesting talking with friends because they all had different uh, favorites as well. Um, my French friends loved the French puppets. My English friends loved the English puppets. My Indian friends loved the Indonesian puppets. I mean, it went all over the place. Um, and growing up on the Northwest Coast, of course, some of the Northwest Coast puppets, especially Bo Dix, was phenomenal. But I have to say my favorite and it's not a puppet, uh, was Skull Mountain by Amanda Strong. Mm. Because it and its environment was breathtaking. And the stage that was set inside there, so even though it was a static piece, uh, it was a backdrop to an act of, uh, to the puppet, which was, of course, um, stop motion, the actual Skull Mountain and all its complexities and its emotive quality, and it's what it, what it stood for through history, resonated with me the most as an installation piece and as a puppet. Wow, that's brilliant, Skuka. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much for tuning in to Shadows, Strings, and Other Things, the Exhibition Conversation. We hope that you enjoyed our interview today with 3D designer Skuka Broom, and that you tune in in the future to learn more about all the creative individuals who helped make this exhibition what it was.